Welcome to the media ministry of Crossroads Church Aspen. To learn more about Crossroads, visit our website at ccaspen.com. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor Steve Woodrow. All right, how's everybody doing this morning? Thanks for being here at the second service. Um, Hope you're hungry for the word, ready to hear, dive in. We're in the book of Revelation. We started last week. We kind of, before that, we've been in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, building steam, preparing the way to get into the book of Revelation. I hope you'll join us, those of you watching online as well, um, in this uh, this journey as we get into the book of uh, Revelation. This morning, we're going to look at this question of uh, staying close to Jesus. We come to the last part of chapter one, if you have your Bibles. Turn to uh, chapter one of Revelation uh, this morning, and we're just looking at this idea of uh, staying close to Jesus. And nowhere in the Bible do we have this glorious vision of the exalted Jesus, uh, what he is right now at the right hand of the Father, like this we see in chapter one. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I gave you a, a little outline uh, of Revelation. I know uh, all of us, Revelation is a little daunting and it's been confusing, and maybe some of you have really dove in and studied quite a bit of it in the past. But uh, here's kind of the outline we're going to follow. Um, it's simple. And, uh, and it's profound, actually, if you think about its impact in our life and our view, right, for the world. It begins with uh, just getting a vision for Jesus. That's why Revelation starts out with chapter one, this vision of Jesus. The next thing is we get a vision of the church. If we don't get Jesus right, we're going to get the church wrong. And, uh, and the answer to everything, right, is a healthy vision of Jesus, a restoration, a renewal, a revival back to a healthy vision of who Jesus is. And, uh, and that leads us into a healthy view of church. If we are struggling with church, then we need to restore, right, our vision of Jesus and what he says about his body in the church. And uh, once we move, and that moves us into chapter two and three of uh, Revelation with the seven letters of the of Jesus to his church, that we're to heed, we're going to get into those. And then the bulk of Revelation moves us, once we have a a right vision of Jesus, a right vision of his church, and we respond to those, now we're able to have a right vision of the world, the kingdoms of this world in battle with the kingdom of God. That's the bulk of Revelation. We'll get into this in the sense of what? What does this look like? It's a healthy understanding of uh, history, what God is doing in the world, especially right now, what is going on in the world. And uh, that bulk of Revelation gives this this insight into this clash is going to come down as the end gets closer. This clash is going to obviously come to a a pinnacle, right, in its clash between the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of God, and Jesus returning. And then the last part of Revelation ends with this glorious vision of the new heavens and new earth. God's intent, his design, is to bring all things together. All things in heaven and all things on earth together again. And uh, just like his intent was in the garden, except this will be better. It'll be renewed completely. And if you go to the book of Ephesians or many other places, this great mystery it talks about of the gospel of what Jesus is doing, this is it. Jesus, his main purpose is to unite all things in heaven and on earth together again. God among his people, God with us and in us for all eternity. That is at the core of Jesus's mission. And so those four movements kind of just simply lay out um, this revelation, this last book in the Bible um, for us. And so we're going to kind of track along on those things. And, but just uh, hold on to us. Think through those four movements to realize that, man, if, if I'm struggling with understanding what's going on in this world, is uh, I need to first start, right, as any problem in life, I first need to 
set back, renewal, my vision of who Jesus is, if I'm struggling, if I'm fearful, if I have questions, doubt, whatever it is, is I need a renewal back to who Christ is in my life. And uh, we need to stay close to Jesus, right? So this idea of staying close to Jesus is, um, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, how do you stay close to Jesus? But maybe a harder question is how do you even define that? How do you know that you're close to Jesus? How do you know you're holding his hand that you're close with him? What does that look like to be close to Jesus? To truly experience his intimacy, to know that you're, you're his and he's yours. You have the assurance of your salvation. You have the assurance that you're with him. That he's got you. And it, and as the scripture of the promise say, no one can snatch you out of, out of his hands. What does this mean to be close to Jesus? And how do we stay close? close to him. And so that's what I want this, to, uh, this chapter, the rest of chapter one to really encourage us with this morning is, but let's, let's, let's break that down. How do we stay close to him? Especially in these uncertain times where, boy, everything is up for grabs. This flux, this, you know, all these things are, are um, everything's changing, right? Everything's up in the air and there's a big movement among churches, a movement among people of faith right now. These are dangerous times. These are times of opportunity, but these are extremely dangerous times and we better heed, right, what is going on and that starts with getting our eyes on Christ and he'll give us the wisdom and the vision, right, to understand the signs of the times as the scripture talks about. So with that said, I just wanna jump into um, to the word this morning. And uh, listen for uh, this encouragement. Listen to this, one of the most amazing, I would say it is the most amazing vision of who Christ is because it's his present, um, it's who he is now at the right hand of the Father waiting to return. He came the first time as, uh, as the God-man in flesh, right, to redeem us and to offer good news, right, to all nations of all people around the world. He will return and is returning soon, right, to bring the kingdom of God to come as reigning king, the ruler of all the kings and nations of this world to bring renewal and to bring heaven and earth right together. So a little background, those of you who are just joining us again online or here, um, Revelation was written by the apostle John. He was the beloved disciple. And uh, again, Jesus, uh, or John was the one that scripture talked about who just, he leaned into Jesus. He was the one that just couldn't get enough. He, he's the one that was closest to Jesus physically even, as well as most likely even in his affection. He was known as the beloved disciple for a reason, is that he couldn't get close enough to Jesus. He was just hanging on him, right? He was, and if anybody knew how to stay close to Christ, it was, it was Apostle John. And uh, at this time, he's, he's, he's an old man. He's in his 80s, I think. He's on the island of Patmos, exiled there. As we talked about last week, he, we're not sure exactly why, but the persecution at, at this time in his life, um, Domitian, the, the Roman emperor, he took emperor worship to a new level, required all citizens, made it mandatory for them to go into his temple, take a little incense and, and uh, worship him, call him God. And of course, Christians wouldn't do that, but some lacked, as they said, some, you know, kind of walked around that issue. And that's why we gave the questions last week, right, is what are we going to do when we're asked to do something against our conscience? And is our conscience aligned with, with the scriptures? In other words, because the scripture is for a believer. Everything we do should be by faith. If I, ha if, if I step out on anything, it's not faith, it's sin. 
And so my conscience has to be right before God in every decision I make. This is the Christian walk in, in what we do. And uh, these things are coming down the line, right, to us at multiple different levels. We're going to have to, boy, where do I stand on these things, right? And to prepare us, right, for even future things that come down the line. And John obviously was sent out to Patmos, small little island, and he was there, it says, on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And, uh, and it's there that he got this vision. And we'll see, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and Jesus came to him with this glorious revelation. Um, and so with that said, let me just dive in and read for us. Revelation chapter one, starting in verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And at the midst, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and, and saying, fear not, I'm the first, the last, and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, the word of God. So Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we ask you, Lord, let that word set deep in our soul. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, may we be in the spirit, Lord, on the Lord's day. Lord, to have ears to hear your spirit is saying, Lord, to the church. Come and move among us, Lord, and Lord, awaken our affection. Lord, and make our hearts burn, Lord, with a desire for you, God. We want communion with you. We love you, God. Now come, speak to us, Lord, profoundly. Lord, let this word just settle in, Lord, and, and start to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, let's dive in. Staying close to Jesus. And uh, first of all, let me just say, I'm just scratching the surface. There's so much in these verses uh, we could talk about. One little principle, I don't think I remember to say this the first service, but was everything you find in here, and this is just a general Bible understanding the Bible. Everything you understand, especially if it doesn't make sense, it, it, the explanation is in the Old Testament. Every bit of this um, description of Jesus has already been given and prophesied in the Old Testament. 
If I had time, I could take you through every bit of this. His hair, the son of man, his technical terminology in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel for this coming Messiah, this one that they were looking for. Um, his feet burnished of bronze. They weren't clay like the vision that Daniel had. That um, They were firm. They're, they're, they're solid. They're, there's so many things here, but it's all already been prophesied in the Old Testament. This book fits together incredibly, okay? I want to just kind of step in with four questions for us out of this chapter, circling around this idea, especially today. Man, what does it look like to stay close to Jesus? What does it look like, to, like John, the Apostle John, to, to stay hold of Jesus, to, to, to love him and to have the assurance and the joy that you're his and he's yours? Um, and uh, Because again, I, I think it, it's not some simple, cheap Sunday school answer, but the answer to everything is Jesus. And the answer to everything is stay close to him. Stay close to him. Stay close to him. The question we need to, to flesh out from this is how? What does this have to say to us how? What does that look like, right? First one of these is this question here. Is our relationship with the church a partnership? And look at this language. John comes and he's writing. Now remember, he's the beloved disciple. So you have to believe this guy was a lover. Now, now it just look on the spectrum. Look how God in his uniqueness works, the 12. You have John. He's the lover apostle, right? The beloved disciple. And the, but the leader of the crew is Peter. And if you read about Peter, um, you know, Peter's kind of, he's your typical type A, kind of let's go, you know, kind of dealing. Even Paul, even more so, right, uh, who came later, right? And, and most people probably wouldn't see Peter or Paul. You don't see them as lovey-dovey. They, they were very affectionate, had deep relationship. John is the lover. And, uh, and remember, Jesus, this is just so profound. Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, he looks down, if you remember that, and he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother. What a tender, just purely human, what an amazing event alone that is. Here he's in his suffering and, and he's got time in the midst of taking on as we're gonna dive in deeply what he did on that cross for us is he looks down, John, I want you, the beloved disciple, this now, you care for my mother. And we know history tells us that John took Mary and they uh, went to Ephesus and spent a lot of time in Ephesus. All these seven churches that are, that are um, in modern-day Turkey today were legitimate, real churches. You can go see the ruins today. And, and uh, we know that John spent a lot of time in Ephesus. All of these churches that he's writing to, he knew intimately, perfectly. They saw him as a beloved pastor um, of them and uh, the one who cared for Jesus' mother. Um, and there's even a, a shrine or a place there where they think she even lived. And, um, and so this is his language and he's writing, this is this, this revelation he received, he's writing to his brothers, brothers and sisters. That word is across the board. He's writing to family. So don't forget that. The context of staying close to Jesus is staying close to his family. We can't have one without the other. Closeness to Jesus is closeness to his family. And we see this, we see no exception to this at all in the scripture. But what we see is John, on the Lord's day, what is the Lord's day? Sunday. It's when the church gathered. I'll come to that here in just a minute. But we see him separated. He's on the island of Patmos. He's alone and he can't be with his, his beloved brothers and sisters. And he's got this revelation. He's writing to them intimately and he says, in partners in the tribulation and the kingdom. My partners, brothers and sisters, my family, he starts with. Then he goes, and my partners. 
And folks, I just ask you as clear as I can, because this is what's being thrown up in the air today when we think about churches, is, boy, how do we view the church? How do we view the body of Christ, the thing he died for, the thing his eyes are on, as we're going to see in Revelation? He doesn't write to nations. He doesn't write to political uh, parties or, or presidents. God's focus ultimately throughout history is his church. That's what he's concerned about. That's what he's coming to redeem. That's what he's concerned about, that he is a church around the world filled up with every tongue, tribe, color, race, whatever it is, those who know him and who are close to him and have received him. That's what he's excited about. All the other nations he uses, right, to bring his church to a prepared place, a ready place. And in his church, he's given, as we're going to get into in just a minute, the keys of the kingdom to bring the good news out to every nation, people group in the world, and, uh, and to bring that love, that loving message. And, uh, and so it just comes back. I have to ask if I'm going to really move towards really answering the question, am I close to Jesus, is I, I have to start with, boy, what, what's my relation to his family? We got a lot of orphans. And folks, let me tell you right now, in our history, in our country right now, never before have we had a fracturing like we're experiencing now. Never before have we had a pulling away, an isolation, a re-questioning, a resignation, whatever it is, never before like what we're seeing right now. It starts with, what is my relationship to his family? I can't be close to him if I'm not close to his family. And look at his language, a pardon in the tribulation and the kingdom it's our partnership. We, we have to do this together. We need each other, right, to carry out God's, to be the people, the shining light on the hill of a loving community of a little heaven on earth so people can see this, right, and be drawn unto it. And we can go out, equip each other and go out, right, in our unique spheres for the kingdom. But this last part, partners in patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. Partners. Here's the clear... And folks, at no other time in, that I know of in, my, in our lifetime, but probably in the history of our nation, have we seen a falling away. We're seeing right now a falling away from the faith like never before. And folks, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's at all levels. All levels. The, the heat is on. The war is on. Jesus said it. We already looked at it in Matthew 24. As the end comes, many, Jesus says, will fall away. Many will be led astray. And if there isn't a partnership, if there, in other words, the patient endurance, there isn't an ability to stand in the midst of all these things unless there's partnership. Otherwise, we're just picked off. Isolation brings weakness, just like in a war. And that's where we have to begin, is this first question of being close to Jesus. I have to evaluate my relationship with his family. And a church family has to reevaluate re our relationship and our partnership, right, with, with each other. And, oh, there's much more to, to say on, on that one. Um, before I do dive into this one about the Spirit, I, I do want to share something. Uh, I read this really interesting article this week. Was, man, it's like there's not a shortage of stuff, right, coming out about, you know, <laughs> the news is crazy every day. Um, but these sociologists and economists were sent this kind of research out, and they're calling it um, the Great Resignation. And uh, I can't remember where this article came out, but um, they're saying that in the next little while here, we're in the midst of the beginning of it, but they're saying that uh, we're most likely going to experience the Great Resignation. One in four will be quitting their job in the near future. Now think about the upheaval. 
One in four are planning to resign from their current work and do something different. They want to find something more flexible, something different. It's just, it's a time of flux. Now, that's a massive statistic, if that's accurate. There's another group of economists and just sociologists who are looking at it, and they're calling their thing the great return because this coming fall is the end of a lot of the um, you know, unemployment benefits and everything else, and they think people are going to wise up and realize, oops, I, I got to get back to work. And so we have these two things that we're, we're hit with right now in the marketplace that's going to cause incredible ongoing, it's just beginning, folks, this uncertainty, this times of change, this, hey, there's opportunity here too, right, of, of upheaval of the great resignation, lots resigning, and lots who are returning, right, back to, uh, to work and other things. Um, and I don't have to say that to those of you who own businesses here in town, right, how hard it is to find employees and everything else or corporations. It's a struggle, right? This is happening. So I want to take those terms and bring them on a spiritual level. Folks, at no other time in our nation have we experienced the great resignation spiritually. People are resigning. One in three have not returned to church in America. That's held true across the board on everything else. And um, what we need to pray for is the great return. And the bottom line is Jesus said many will move and fall away. Many will deconstruct and deconstruct so far that they don't return. But at the same time in this upheaval, God is calling. He's purifying his church. He's equipping his church, getting it ready, right, for his return. That's what should be the attitude of anybody who follows Christ, right? And uh, so that should be our prayer, the great return, the great repentance. Is there going to be, and this can't happen, right? It's the beginning of all. This is repentance, a genuine sense of turning to God away, right, from the world that we have just played softball with as the church for way too long. And, um, and so, boy, if we're going to truly stay close to him, um, we need to really, first of all, wrestle with, boy, where am I at? Where's my partners in the gospel? Where are the ones holding my arms up? Where, is my fam- where am I with the family of God, right? Where does that connect? And, um, boy, he moves on. This is verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Um, so we know the Lord's day is Saturday. So, uh, it's interesting, just a little history here. The Sabbath, folks, has never changed. I hear people all the time say, oh, we, you know, uh, it's Sabbath time. No, Sunday is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath technically is Saturday. It's never changed. Now, Jesus has come, he's fulfilled the law, and it says for one person views this day this way, we could get into this discussion. But technically speaking, as far as Scripture goes, the Sabbath is Saturday. Any faithful Jew worships on Saturday. Sunday is technically the Lord's Day, and it's the Lord's Day because Jesus rose at the first of of Sunday. That's when he rose from the dead. And the early church, all who were Jews, uh, they they continued to be faithful, keeping the Sabbath on Saturday, and then they would worship together Sunday morning or Sunday evening uh, as the church. And as things kind of became where the Jews split off and they didn't receive Jesus, the church remained meeting early on as as John says right here, on Sunday morning, the, fir- the Lord's day. And, uh, and he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I want us to hold on to this language because here, here's what's important to understand is this was not a one-time deal for John. This specific revelation was a one-time radical revelation was given to him. But the idea of being in the spirit for John was an experience that was normative for him. 
Okay? So I, I just give this to us to, to think about here in the sense of if somebody's a believer, is the only way we can be believers if the Holy Spirit comes in to our soul and, and, and we're uh, spirit-filled. The Spirit comes and, and he redeems us, saves us. You can't be a follower of Jesus unless the Spirit of God's in you, unless this temple, this house has been redeemed, meaning the Spirit of God. We accept Jesus, it means we, the Spirit of God comes and starts his regenerative work right inside our soul. What Paul, what um, John is talking about here is not that experience. He's not talking about his salvation. He's not talking about what was applied to him when he's saying. He's talking about an experience, right? With an existential experience with the Spirit of God. And uh, boy, if we're going to stay close to Jesus, folks, we have to be honest with our heart. We have to be honest with our experience. And, and, and there's nothing wrong. And, and so we can't have this battle. The problem is today we have too many on this side who are coming up with a theology to explain the lack of our experience. Don't go there. That's false teaching. Don't go there. Right? Don't go. Don't, don't go to a theology to hold on to things and to try to explain away the lack of my experience or my church's experience. We keep pressing in. God, help us be in the spirit on your day. And all the time pursuing that, right? But we can't fling to the other side either, where we, which we see in our country, around the world, where we generate some emotional, sensational, just, just call it, a, you know, get some goosebumps going and call, oh, we were in the spirit. That's a false, trying to work people up emotionally, that's in a false experience with the spirit. Does that make sense, gang? We're called to be people of God and who genuinely are ruthlessly based in the truth and are going for a genuine experience of being in the spirit, right? And that's individually when I'm with the Lord alone or worshiping him and just feeling. And we talk about being close to Jesus. You can't, this is, this is the technical terminology of being close to Jesus is being in the spirit. I'm in the spirit. The spirit takes over in my life. My flesh goes away, my intentions, I'm overwhelmed by the presence of God in my life. I'm overwhelmed by his goodness. I'm overwhelmed by his awe. And, and there's a sense of, of reverence. There's a sense of, of as we're going to see, John goes to his face in the presence of Jesus. That's being close to Jesus. Being able to have, and if, if I don't have, if I'm struggling with that, careful that I don't sling out this way to a wrong theology, to explain it away. Oh, you don't need to worry about that. Right? And be careful you don't get slung out over here. Oh, well, just come on. Let's just well something up and call something being in the spirit that's not really being in the spirit. It's just high emotion. Right? It's generally being honest. Folks, let's go. And wouldn't it be amazing if that's how we define, if they, coming into churches, we pray. Wouldn't it be amazing if that's how we all prayed? Lord, can we be all together in the spirit on the Lord's day? And we come to worship is that the spirit takes over. All my, you know, my concerns about my hike today, my lunch appointment at noon, my, you know, whatever it is, man, that goes away. I'm here, I'm here, Lord, come, just let us enjoy your presence. I mean, what would happen, right, if the church met in, in, around America and the spirit just came and took over and, and we lost track of the time and, and it was just joy in the presence of God and he started moving right among people's hearts, Right? And we, and, we, and we got eyes to see the pathetic nature of sensationalism, you know, all the entertainment uh, bells and whistles that are used to pump up emotion. And we didn't, we're not going to fall for that crap. I want the real thing. And we're not going to go over here and get all intellectual and, and explain away my lack of experience. 
Man, we just, Lord, we want you. And I don't want, I don't want sheep, I don't want any, anything short of it. I want you, God, right? That is what it is to stay close to Jesus. And that is what's needed in his church, right, today desperately. And so, another thing I think is so important here, gang, is, and hold on to this, okay? The Spirit's role primarily is to do what? What's the Holy Spirit's main role? Okay, sure. He's involved in that. But what's the Holy Spirit's main role is to exalt Jesus. So hold on to this. If Jesus is not exalted, if people don't come out of church overjoyed with Jesus more than I'm overjoyed with the band or the preacher or that was a great this or that, that's a false move of the Spirit of God. The Spirit's role is to exalt Jesus. And and the fastest way to find out a false experience is that Jesus is not exalted. When Jesus is exalted and he's the one that's held up high as the main center stage in our hearts and and in our time together, that you know the Spirit of God is moving. And and if if God gives you, if if you have a spiritual experience and Jesus is not exalted, I can tell you right now, it's a false experience. It's of the enemy. Jesus is the one the Spirit of God exalts, right? And we got to hold on to that. So let me get quickly where I'm going here. Um, I want to camp out on this last one. But quickly here, verse 17. So in the Spirit, John, when he gets a vision of Jesus in his glory, boom, straight to his face. And folks, this is the deal again. This is for me another real... uh, it's an indicator because you see it all through the Testament. When the presence of God comes, when holy ground is generally there, when the Spirit of God is moving, there is a sense of healthy fear of God and awe. And there's a sense, right, of boom, straight to our face. There is a sense of overwhelming reverence that fills the house. There cannot be the presence of God where there's not reverence. He's a gentleman. He's not going to come crashing in. He wants us to open the doors we're going to get to in Revelation. He, there's a sense of reverence. And I think when we talk about being close to Jesus, I have to ask myself constantly, is my fear properly placed? Where am I putting my fear? Am I fearful about the economics? Am I fearful about my finances? Am I fearful about my job? Am I fearful about corona? Am I just going on a list of things? And always being close to Jesus is coming back, right, to put my fear first and foremost on God. Do I have a healthy fear of God? God, this is all. You're in control. You're in control of it all. And I put myself, I lay all, everything else before you, God. I give you worship. I give you reverence. I I set myself before you. You are sovereign over all this. I don't understand it, but I trust you, God. Right? And this this sense of reverence, folks, that that, where is that today? I mean, we got rock shows. We We want goosebumps. We want to feel good, right? We want somebody to make us feel good about ourselves. I, I sh- where, where, you know, where is that in, in, in the scripture? No, where we come together to exalt him and when that happens, there is reverence. The presence of God, it is on, there's no time in the scriptures where the presence of God does not come in, the kind of glory, the cloud, whatever it is, where there isn't. I mean, how about Peter's first encounter with Jesus? Boom, he caught where he caught the fish. He's on his face. Oh my God, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. That is a move of God. 
That is what is needed to be restored back to our church. And I believe God is cleaning house right now because he wants to be with his people. He wants to be with his children in his church. And that is not possible where there isn't reverence, where there isn't repentance, where there isn't a real sense of, of understanding right, the, the, the power and glory of God right among us. And so it talks about being close to, to, to Jesus. Where's my fear? Do I have a healthy fear of God? And that sets us up for this last one. Do we really know the gospel? I mean, do we really know it? Um, and so I want to tie two verses together, stepping back to verse five, to this beautiful language that he says when he's beginning his letter. He says, to him who loves us, Jesus, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Do you know what Jesus has done for you? Do you know what he's really done on the cross in his resurrection? And then we come to this beautiful passage here in uh, verse 18, and he lays his hand, fear not, John, I'm the first, I'm the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm, I, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys now of death and Hades. I've conquered death. I've conquered hell. I've conquered the underworld. Do not fear. Right? Folks, we're under a time right now too, um, in our lifetime, there's never been a greater attack upon the gospel itself. I, I'm not talking out there. I'm talking inside the church. Right now, it, it, there's been no other time where the actual core orthodox biblical understanding of the gospel has been attacked and is completely being deconstructed inside churches across America. And there is false teaching that is radically on there. And again, Jesus said this in Matthew 24. How are people be led astray? Because they start, first start letting their ears get tickled by a false, weak gospel that's self-centered, therapeutic, and all those other things, rather than the power of, of, of the gospel itself, of what Jesus really did right on the cross for us. And, uh, and this false gospel is one that is, it's just moving slowly, but I'm telling you, the, it's ramped up right now where you have, used to be Orthodox preachers now preaching against the wrath of God, now preaching this lovey-dovey God that he's love and he's not wrath, there's no judgment, he's all love and no wrath, and, and that's obliterating the truth of God. There's no way to be honest with the word of God and do that, and that is radical false teaching. And it's selling people, uh, it's completely redoing the whole idea of the atonement. That's fancy language for what Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross. In other words, he had to be our substitute. He had to, in other words, when he said it's finished, is God put on him all the wrath of my sin that was due me, judgment, right justice had to be done for me to receive this goodness. In other words, God is pure and holy. He cannot not bring about judgment, right, and justice. And we have a whole culture today that, man, that we have been coddled, we have been, been brainwashed by our educational system and everything else right down the line, and it's crept into the church, right, where we we just can't handle the wrathful God. Okay, we, we, we've turned away from all the truth of the glory of God and it's been a self-centered gospel. We're creating God in our image and this stuff is now being pumped out of pulpits right all around the country today and, and I'm not gonna give names or anything like that but I'm just saying beware church. Beware, if you, if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't hold to the word of God, you will and can easily be led astray like this in a second, right, to this wrong understanding of what God has really, the magnitude of Jesus' love, his shed blood for you, for my sin, that I could be set free from all this, right? 
And, uh, you know, they, they've just deconstructed it all um, to the point where, you know, no wrath, that Old Testament God is a different God and God's all love and I could go on and on, right? But it, this, is, this is dangerous stuff, folks. And it's at a level never before seen in, in our nation because it's at the center of so much of the church today. And um, so let me just, let, let's glory in the goodness of the gospel. Let me try to lead us on a little journey as we close in, in the absolute uniqueness and glory of what Jesus has done for us. And it goes all the way, but we start back, folks, in, in, in the very beginning of the Bible. And this, is, this book ties together, folks. It's so, it's, it is amazing. It's a miracle. It's the word of God, right? Nothing like it fits together like an amazing glove, right? And uh, all the back to the, to the garden. And, and, and remember, the garden was a temple, what the Garden of Eden was a temple because God walked right freely with Adam and Eve and all of creation in the garden and he commissioned Adam and Eve um, to go and expand the work of the garden. Take the kingdom of God, the temple of God out, right, and expand that goodness around the world. And... Um, but you know the story. Obviously, the angelic realm had fallen. Satan, uh, that's a whole other story, right? But obviously, Satan was present there in the garden at this time and, and kept tempting Adam and Eve. You had the tree of life. You had the tree of good, of knowledge of good and evil, right? And uh, remember, uh, um, uh, God gave Adam clear indication to, uh, to hold firm, do not eat of this tree, right? Of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat everywhere else, but don't eat of that. And... Uh, but you know the rest of the story. They took the fruit and they ate it. And at that moment, they realized um, their sin. And it comes in this package. Sin, shame, guilt. And those things alienate them, separate them from a holy God. And every one of us is born into this world under those three things. Sin, shame, guilt. And the gospel, what God's plan is to cover that to renew all things again, back to the heaven and earth united together again. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, if you can read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because again, they can't, and remember what God said, this is very important, he says, let's put a, angels to protect this, cast them out into the world, to the fallen world now, and um, because lest they might take now of the tree of life and live forever. If they took of the tree of life, they would live forever, ever, um, unredeemed, unredeemable, just like the fallen angels. Now, when you go to Revelation, and just hang with me, I'm going to throw a lot of theology at you. I just want to tie the beauty of the gospel together. You go, we're going to get there. You go all the way to the end of Revelation, and it starts describing the new heavens, the new earth. In the new heavens, the tree of life there, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not there. Jesus killed that tree. So in other words, in the new heaven and new earth, there's no opportunity for sin or fall. We are his forever. He's solved the problem forever. There's never a potential for sin or ruin again in the, in the new kingdom, right? But when they sinned, sin, shame, and guilt came upon them. And you know what they did. They realized, wow, we're, 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 their eyes were opened. And they were shameful. And we all know this experience. We all know guilt. We all know shame deeply. And they tried to cover themselves up. You know, the story says they, all they had was, let's grab some fig leaves. Let's see how this works, you know? And that doesn't work too well for very long, right? But folks, listen to this. Who made the first sacrifice? Who made the first sacrifice? It was God. It says that God took animals and he made skins. He made a, pro listen to this language. God gave them proper covering 
for their bodies. Now here's the profound thing. Adam was given the task. He named all the animals. He knew them by name. And folks, let me tell you, what a strong reminder. Remember Leviticus and Hebrews, everything says without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins because life is in the blood. And for Adam to sit there now, now he's wearing this, they'd never seen death before. This precious animal he knew, he named, is now covering him. It was slaughtered so that he might live and have a temporary covering for his shame and his guilt. Folks, all the way back to the beginning is the prophecy is God's heart. He's going to provide the perfect sacrifice. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, 20. It is because of him, God is the one who put upon his son who had no sin, sin, so we might be his righteousness. That's the gospel. And what we have today is this false teaching that God, he can be all love. He doesn't need, right, justice to, to be loving and forgive. And they know nothing of the large context of sacrifice and of the power of justice and love and, and the glory of God, right, in perfect harmony, right? And uh, folks, we bring this in the New Testament, what Jesus has done for us. And folks, it's amazing when you think about his teaching of the disciples. And uh, remember at Caesarea Philippi, he says, who am I? And, and you know, Peter piped up and said, you're the, the, the one, the Christ. And, and he says, your father has given you this insight. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. As he's telling him that, he's looking there at Caesarea Philippi, this massive cave that you can go see today, which was known in the pagan world as the entrance into the underworld. And when Jesus died on that, and he says to them, now I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he said it is finished, at that moment, he was the perfect sacrifice covering atonement for our sin. It was perfect because he was, he was spotless, right? And all the Old Testament, why this animal sacrifice? Why all the blood in the Old Testament? It was to get a powerful point across, Right? The magnitude of sin and what it takes for God to be in communion with sinners. And the great hope, right? For all the Old Testament saints, they, they had hope out of Sheol. Sheol was the Old Testament terminology of the underworld. The New Testament is Hades. It's where you go without God. It's separation without God. And, they, and, and, and there was this trauma of how we, no one had ever come out of Hades. No one had ever gone to death and come out again. Until Jesus. Until Jesus. And when Jesus died, folks, not only did he take the, the just punishment for our sin, but he descended to hell. Now, we can talk about what happened down there, but one thing we can say, however we work it, is he did not go down there because he had to pay or, or ransom or anything to the Satan. He owed nothing to the kings of darkness. He went down there in victory, and he said, those keys are mine now. I defeated the power of death and Hades. They're mine forever and ever. And he rose from the grave and he has now the keys of, of the Hades, of death and Hades. And because he has that power now, he's defeated the power of death and sin. No longer can the kingdom of this world and the devil who got power over us by Adam and Eve granting it to them, right, in the very beginning, right, is that we can be freed from those things. And when he says to you, church, you, I give you the king, keys of the kingdom, because he has the keys of, of death and Hades, is that he's given you the key to help other people unlock salvation, for, to unlock their heart. How can I be free from this separation from God, this boundness to hell? And that's pretty awesome stuff, isn't it? 
That's what happened at the cross. Folks, anything less than that, call it out what it is, that that's a false gospel. As Paul said, if anybody teaches you a gospel other than what I've taught you, is call it an anthem, or words, call it a curse. That is a false gospel. And today, that false gospel is spreading like wildfire. Right? Derek, y'all, come on up. So I just, uh, there's so much more. I'm kind of just scratching the surface here, but I hope that you got a little bit of the glory of the gospel. And the technical terminology is penal substitution. It's just, there's a penalty that had to be paid for the justice of God, right? For my sin, for your sin, for the sin of the world. And, and, and that took a perfect sacrifice, shedding of blood, right? And that was Jesus all the way back to God took care of the first sacrifice. He took care of the perfect sacrifice, his own son for all eternity, right? That we could walk with him. And folks, I, I just give it to you today to, to think about the renewal. Where, where is it again where people are, 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 are restless in the sense of, boy, where, where is my soul? And do I have the assurance that my soul is, is not gonna just go to Sheol or Hades and be separated from God? Do I, what assurance do I have that when I breathe my last that I'm gonna be close to Jesus? And that's the good news, folks, that we are, are, are to be about. It's the keys that unlock a soul for the Spirit of God to come and to take hold and renew, right? So Father, we just thank you. Jesus, we want to be close to you more than anything. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Overwhelm us with your goodness. And Father, if there's anybody's questioning, Lord, Father, I just pray that you come like a wave, Holy Spirit, and bring your goodness and your salvation your forgiveness and your embrace, Lord. Your embrace and your radical love. But Lord, may we forgive us, Lord, for embracing your love and minimizing your justice. Forgive us, Lord, for wanting your grace and wanting your love, but minimizing our sin and the cost of what it takes to have our sin covered, that we might be righteous before you. Lord, again, restore your gospel, the glory of this message, Lord. For many people, it's old news. Lord, for many churches, it's old news. God, restore, renew us. Lord, to see the glory that it is, Father. Start with us. Thank you, Lord. You're an awesome. Jesus, give us fresh eyes for your glory. And you're coming back. Make us ready, Jesus. Let us be people hungry, faithful, patient, full of your joy. Yes, Lord. We love you, God. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message. To hear other messages or learn more about Crossroads Church, visit our website at ccaspen.com.